just a push on a particular question. Do you, does that mean that you think that you have to give back to the place I that gave you? I didn't give this year to Princeton. It's the first year since Avi graduated that mm-hmm. I didn't give back to Princeton. Yeah. And it, because of the things that are coming out yeah. this last year, I still feel that. And I know yeah. I will get, because I, if everybody thought the way we think, they will not have an endowment at some point. Mm-hmm. And they now have a very strong Jewish community they didn't have when Avi was going. And I just feel that there, it's, every donation is a very complicated issue. And if you, if you study any place you give money to, you will find the evil that comes out. Mm-hmm. So it's weighing many things. Yeah, good. All right, well, one, I want to add one last wrinkle. Then I know people are waiting actually to see some text. But one, one last piece is someone said back to my friend, they said, when you're grateful to somebody, you don't get to choose how to express your gratitude. What it means to be grateful to somebody is that you're obligated to them, right? It's not, you, it's not just a nice thing that you're grateful. You're obligated to them. And so it's not, Margo, is that right? You no, know. I, okay. I'm but, 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 you know, this is sort of the person that's rebutting Margo and saying, hey, it doesn't mean you get to give money to Amnesty International or, you know, Yeshiva's Haaretzion or whatever. You've got to give money back to Princeton. Well, is, that, is that the case? Is, or zooming out of the, the alumni, is it the case that when you're grateful to someone, you are obligated to them? I think you're yeah. putting it too black and white. You're putting it too black and white, alright. Okay, so that's one possibility. You think so? I, I think so, because I was listening, and I'm yeah. listing all the places I contribute, right. and then I heard your last word, grateful, yeah. and I went, I'm not grateful ah, to my high good. school. If you were grateful to your high school, you would have yeah, to right. give back. Right. I'm yeah. grateful to two years of a specific elementary school yeah. and a graduate Good. school that gave Good. me. Uh, so, but work. when you're grateful, you owe it to the to the source. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. One more. I, I would have said that, but now that you've asked the question, it seems to me that if you're grateful for for if and I'll use the word grateful. I'm not so uncomfortable with it. But if if you're grateful for what you have become, or for what your child has become, then maybe you direct your largesse toward uh-huh. something in that uh-huh. area, uh-huh. you know, if you, Good. whatever you would, some so connection, if you, if you become a right. physician, so maybe you, Good. Maybe there's some you connection, can, but there's not, there's not a, there's not a, there's not a, not a reciprocal. Good. Good. Yeah, I think we're going to get into more detail on this in a kind of technical sense towards the end of the class, but there's a puzzle about the obligation associated with gratitude. That is to say, there does seem to be some way in which, we have a word in English, ungrateful, right? There are obligations associated with gratitude. There's a connection between those two things. And yet it's not at least pristine what that obligation is. And we'll see that gets a little sharper through some of the sources. But I want to approach this through a couple of midrashim. Um, and obviously if we look at the midrashim, we need to start with the base text, the biblical text, uh, the very perhaps not the biblical text you thought you were going to be studying this morning, that house leprosy. Um, don't read on, you'll ruin the surprise. And what I want to do is just read this one verse about house leprosy and approach it with the eyes of an interpreter. That is to say, approach it with the eyes of a midrashist or a medieval parshan and ask what's funny about this verse. Right? We want to set up the interpretations we're going to read by ask what's bugging people. Uh, so, Avital, you just read for us in either language the verse from Leviticus. 
When you come to the land of Canaan, which I am giving to you as a possession, and I place the plague of leprosy on a house of the land of your possession. Great. So if you were writing a uh, commentary and you just were focused on this verse, what, would bo- what are the problems in this verse? What would bother you? What's funny here? Hell of a gift. Right. <laughs> Good. Good. There seems to be a peculiar juxtaposition between this being an incredible gift and the gift is house mold. Great. Good. Problem number one. Anything else? Yeah. What's your name? The very fact that you're coming into a land to take possession of it doesn't take possession of it from somebody else. Good. Possession. Possession? What does it mean, possession? How are we getting possession exactly? Who's possession? What possession? It's a word that the verse uses two times. You know, it seems to be an important word. What's going on with the possession business? Good. Possession, that's the second problem. Mm. Any other problems? I got more problems. I got seven. We got two. (laughs) Do a little better. It's only going to happen when you go to the land. Good. Yeah. Actually, by the way, you wouldn't know this, but if you look, there's other laws of leprosy, personal leprosy, uh, garment leprosy. All those seem to apply in the desert too. All of a sudden, the house leprosy. But they have tents in the they have tents in the wilderness too. Those can't get leprosy. Might good. be in your house. Good. Very good. A house of the land of your possession. Bevet eretz achuzachem. What does that mean? Not your house? Why doesn't it just say one of your houses? Why does it say the house and the land? There's some kind of weird connection between the house and the land. Sorry? You can burn down the enemy's house. Okay. Okay. Great. So so somehow connected to the previous possessors. Anything else? All right. That's pretty good. So we got some gift. Why is it just in the land? This funny phrase at the end. And the logic of possession. All right, so now we're ready for the first interpretation of Vayikra Rabbah, right, a late antique uh, compilation of Midrashim on Leviticus. Um, and let's see, Gabe, would you read uh, Leviticus Rabbah 17.6? Sure. Uh, and I placed the plague of leprosy. Uh, Rabbi Hia taught, uh, is it good news for them that plagues come on them? Right, this is, remind your name? Saul. This is Saul's problem, right? Some gift. Uh, Rabbi Shimon, son of Yohai, taught, when the Canaanites heard that Israel were coming, they arose and hid their money in their houses and fields. The Holy Blessed One said, I promised their ancestors that I would bring their descendants into a land full of goodness, as it says, and houses full of all goodness, which you did not build. Pause that, right? Uh, Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, rather, has a whole vision of you're going to come into the land, there's going to be cities you didn't build, right? Houses are full of all goodness, which you didn't fill them, fields, vineyards, all the stuff that you didn't have. Right? So this is playing out what that verse means. So it's linking the Deuteronomy and Leviticus verses and finish it out. Uh, what does the Holy Blessed One do? God sends an eruption of plagues on this person's house and he tears it down and takes out the treasure. Great. So the problem here, right, what are the problems that this is solving? One problem obviously solving is Saul's problems. Saul's problem. What other problems does this, this solve with the verse? The Kitavo. Kitavo it solves why it's about the land, yeah. right? That's problem two it solves. And you'll have, you know, if you tear down your house, you'll find the treasure. What is, and what problem does that solve? The leprosy. Ah, it solves the whole problem of why we're I being mean, commanded yeah, about house leprosy. Otherwise you won't find the gold. Great, so it's, it's solving a kind of bigger problem that we didn't even raise, which is, why is God doing this whole shtick with the leprosy? And the answer is, this is nice, this is great, you know. Good. It's like in, I didn't watch The Sopranos, in the third season of The Sopranos, right, yeah. when Janice is convinced that her mother has hidden 
like hundreds of thousands of dollars in the basement, and she goes around the basement like with a hammer, tapping, like looking for the, the secret, the secret gold. You, you go out and see; it's great, right? So that's that's how. Yeah, what do you got? Again, it's, I go back to my initial point about yeah. dispossessing people. Yeah. Good. 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 This is a text of disposition. different from what we just heard about the Federal Housing Administration. I mean, well, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm just going to put that in there. It's totally different. Um, good. By the way, there's one other problem interpretively it solves, which is somebody said, who said the problem, why doesn't it say your houses? Why does it say the house and the land of your possession? It's just earlier said. Oh, good. You will, get, you will come to a place with houses you didn't build. Right. In other words, the point is, well, house leprosy is not on your houses. It's only on their houses, because their houses are the whole... The, you once you're done... Good. All right. Now, just step back for a second. How is... And Beverly, you started to sort of answer this question. How is wealth portrayed in this text? What are the characteristics of wealth? What kind of thing is wealth? It's valuable. It's valuable, right? That's... Yeah. Un- unearned. It's unearned. Good. Good. Why is it unearned? You haven't been here long enough to earn it. That's one. Okay. Yes. You haven't been here long enough? What if it really unearned is it considered you were in slavery and therefore you earned it? Uh-huh. So it's all those hours you weren't paid for? Uh-huh. No, okay. you're a new kid in town. You have to dig it out. Yeah, I mean, there's a, it seems like there's a, there's a tension here also between different count on accounts of unearned, and I want to flag that. One account of unearned, which is actually Deuteronomy's account, is it's unearned because God gave it to you, right? It's unearned with respect to the Abishter, the, you know, the, the Holy Blessed One, right? Uh, the other account of why it's unearned is it's unearned because it's stolen, right? And those two are related, but distinctive, right? It's an, it's an interesting point. Two conceptions of unearned. The term is malkoach. Stuff which you have taken. Good, good. Um, yeah. I mean, the guy whose house is burned down isn't getting his treasure. That's right. You are. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's the theft account of what's going on here. Yeah, and the one last thing I want to say about this text, which I think is sort of important, you might have a conception that uh, what the text that that we come to this text with some sort of ethical intuition about what's going on with the dispossession of Canaan, and that we're really importing that on the text. I think it's important to note whenever a midrash connects two verses, there's a bidirectional linkage. That is to say, one of the things the midrash is doing when it connects Deuteronomy with Leviticus. It is telling is the explicit thing, which is, is telling you that Leviticus is a positive. It is telling you that house leprosy is a wonderful thing because it is gonna, you know, you're gonna find a fortune. The other thing that the Midrash is doing is that it is telling you that there is something unsettling and upsetting about Deuteronomy and the houses which are full of all good because they're associated with house leprosy. Right? Midrashim are always bidirectional. They don't only work one way, they also work the other way. Right? As much as this is a story about how good house leprosy is, it, it's also a story about how bad and how sort of haunted the houses that you're moving into are. 
right? This is it's similar to the trope in American culture. If you watch a horror movie, it always takes place on an Indian graveyard, right? Like there's a sense of hauntedness associated with dispossession, um, and I, I don't think that that's sort of reading into it too much. Um, I, we got we got to move on. Well, can I? I think because it's 12:20, I'm going to take us to the next text. Um, all right. So now we're going to move basically three paragraphs back in Leviticus Rabbah, and we're going to look at a second midrash that is going to do similar but different, same same but different interpretive work. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, Sarah, would you read Leviticus Rabbah 72? A person says to his friend. Lend me a measure of wheat. And he says, I don't have it. Lend me a measure of barley. I don't have it. A measure of dates. I don't have it. A woman says to her friend, Lend me a sieve. And she says, I don't have it. Lend me a sister. And she says, I don't have it. What does the Holy Blessed One do? God sends an eruption of plagues on this person's house. Since they have to remove all of their implements, everyone sees and says, Didn't that person say they had nothing? Look how much there is here, how much barley there is here, how many dates there are here. The house is plagued with such bad plagues. Thus Moses warned Israel when you come to the land of Canaan. Right, I think you have to read it. The house is plagued with such <laughs> bad plagues. Right? So it's sarcastic. Um, good. So just before we even get into interpreting, what is similar here in this Midrash to the preceding one and what has changed? What's similar and what's different? just on the basic level of the contents of the Midrashim. We're not talking about uh, national origin or anything in this one. Aha, good. It's another person, uh, it doesn't say another person who lived here before whose house you're trying to... Great, it's, it's future and present-oriented rather than past-oriented. And if, if you are not receptive uh, to the needs of... Mm-hmm. Uh, your neighbor who asks for a little Good. power or a little something, uh, then you will end up getting punished for it. Good. It's pun- that's, an- that's another difference, is that it's punishment okay. rather than God's beneficence. Okay, two differences. What's similar? The stuff in the house. The stuff in the house. And it's going to come out. And it's going to come out. Great. The- that's an important thing to notice. Right? Precisely, I've forgotten your name. Wendy. Wendy, right? So because Wendy's point is, is so sort of striking about the character of the Midrash, it's important to notice that it's the exact same scenario that is playing out with a kind of different moral lens placed on it. There's stuff in the house, and the function of house leprosy is to get you to get stuff from inside the house and take it out of the house. Good. Um, Anything else that's similar or different about them? That maybe these people were not tithing properly either, since they're so ungenerous. It's possible that Midrash you know, doesn't say anything about their tithing. In the background too, uh-huh. how they're harvesting all this stuff. Which uh-huh. Great. So you're also identifying what is the problem. The problem is hoarding. Um, selfishness. Selfishness. It's maybe not food. Uh huh. It's, it's root. When they, when they when they leave because they don't want to share with the community. Uh huh. Good, 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 good. There's a sense of sharing with the, with the community. Good. Um, what's the conception of wealth here in this text? What's the, what, what sort of words would you associate with wealth? What is the meaning of wealth in this text? Redistributive. Ah, beautiful. Wealth as a kind of agricultural. It's not like in the first text, wealth was gold and silver. 
right? It was accumulated wealth, whereas here it is agricultural wealth. But these and what are things you, what that are related to the land. Uh-huh, related to the land, good. Yeah, I, that's interesting. I was going to play out the sense of also, you know, you could think of the wealth in the first text as kind of capital, whereas the Sheva Minim are things you eat. Right, it, is, it has a kind of consumable feel to it. Well, it's, it's, it's also a part of one part. A means of gaining wealth by Good. So we actually see the process by which yeah. by which food. Good. Very interesting. The difference between between gold and silver versus these kind of agricultural productive goods. Yeah, Margaret. I have a question. To, to yeah. me, I would I would normally think that a house itself is of value. Mm-hmm. So why is the house? Very interesting. Destroyed? Good. Good. That's very interesting. That the house is here depicted as a kind of space in which value is contained, but not in, but not in and of itself well, valuable. If I think of the, for example, yeah. Native American, Native Canadian experience. Yeah. Um, uh, right. A blanket was a value, but it 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 was placed with TB. Mm-hmm. Um, here is the the house. Mm-hmm. It has leprosy, but a house is also a value, and yeah. yet, good. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. it's a totally fascinating fact that house in these two texts is treated as essentially the membrane yeah. that separates the individual from the collective. Right? It's not being treated as a physical structure that you have a mortgage on and that you know, is worth you know, $1.8 million or whatever it is. You know, halavai. Uh, of paragraph relates to <clears throat> if leprosy is declared mm-hmm. and you have to tear down the house or, de- mm-hmm. or take out the stone. Right, that's right. The second one deals with what you do before leprosy is declared. You must take everything out of the house Great. lest it be in, Good. Uh, uh, implicated in, with leprosy itself. Great. So that, that would apply to everyone whether the house is declared, uh, is declared to be leprous Good. or not. Yeah. So um, uh, just saying that, it, that a house is general the, scare, the, um, the framework for the framework to which a number of different laws are associated and, and yeah. can be exploited for different purposes, all related to the issue of, of uh, generosity. Good, great. So yeah, so that's the, so I just want to come back to this question of what wealth is, what, what what wealth means. Wealth also, you're saying, means generosity in this text. Wealth is supposed to be used generously. Um, yeah. I'm not trying to spend this. Yeah. Um, talking about giving, he's talking about lending. Aha, good, that's very interesting. Lending, so the miserliness here is not the miserliness of not sitting and writing the checkbook, it's about lending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like enough to you, right? So you're saying it's not, it's not really generosity, it's about... I don't know, Why do you think, by the way, does anyone have a sense of why, why is lending the thing that comes up here? Well, maybe it's about trust. Uh-huh. Good. Yeah. You might think about lending also as the kind of relationship of reciprocality, right? Like the thing about lending is lending as a kind of. If you think again about this house as a perme- as the kind of question of a membrane, the le- lending is the kind of thing that establishes a relationship back and forth. But hold on to that. Remind me your name. I forgot Bina. it. Sorry. Bina. Bina. Hold on to that question in a minute when we get to to a later text. Yeah. Um, I was struck by, again, uh, thinking back to the um, keynote, about mm-hmm. the gap here, yeah. because the word much and comma, mm-hmm. in other words, the guy didn't have a little bit, mm-hmm. but there was a ton of wheat, there was yeah. excess, in yeah. other words, he had plenty, yeah. and he couldn't give even a little bit. Good. It's not like he had a little bit of wheat, but he had yeah. much barley, much wheat. 
Yeah. Karma. Good. Yeah. Well, can I just ask a basic question? Should I ask this even earlier? What's the midrash here? That's to say, we explained it. What's the what's the midrash? Thus Moses warned Israel when you come to the land of Canaan. Why why is that the last line there? What does the Canaan have to do with it? Anybody know? Well, this is why it, it would t- t- maybe it's, it's asking the question because also seen in the earlier pasuk of yeah. why this whole mitzvah is connected to the land of Canaan. Maybe in the desert, people were more willing to share. There was less wealth, and uh-huh. it wasn't really an issue of Good. having permanent houses or permanent possessions. The sense that this is the land of prosperity, and yeah. pr- there's a, there's other things. So the thing about wealth is that wealth is morally corrupting. Yeah. Right. But it, it, I could do better than that. Yeah. Uh huh. Great. So it's like a communist utopia in the desert. Great. Good. But I could do better than this. Canaan. What does the word Canaan mean in Hebrew? Yeah. So the word Canaan, one of the things means Canaan. But you, some people in this room probably sing, you know, Eshes on Friday night. You sing the line Chagor Nat Nala Knani. You know, she gives a belt to the Knani. Right, or sells a belt to the Kanani. Kanani doesn't mean Canaanite there. Right? It doesn't have anything to do with Canaanite. The other meaning of the word Kanani, one second, in, in biblical Hebrew is merchant. Right? And so the ending is thus Moses warned Israel when you come to the land of Canaan, when you come to the land of merchant, when you come to the golden of Medina. Right? That's the other kind of basic link between these two Leviticus Rabbah. They both seem to construe. House leprosy, it's in the background of that first one, too, as associated with money, as associated with wealth, as associated with uh, a commercial economy. Great. So now we're going to turn to the Kliakar. Um, this is a Shlomo Ephraim and Aaron Linschitz. This is a 16th century commentator back on the biblical text. He's really amazing. And we're going to treat him a little bit as a kind of moral philosopher. But if you have time, I encourage you to go back to uh, you go to Safari and just look at the whole comment. He's actually also talking about the text, and it's, it's a real treat to see how he sort of weaves it in and out, because his whole sort of shtick is he, he puts together Midrashim in, in kind of complicated ways. and It's really gorgeous, but we're not going to do that right now. Um, so let's see how he does. Akiva, you've read, you've read already? No. All right, you read. Uh, the essential reason for health leprosy is miserliness. As I was saying, you seek us from the verse... And the one whose house it shall come forth. The well, that's just a pause for a second. This is, yeah, I don't remember your name. David. David. So this is yet another law. As David was referring to many different laws. So one of the laws is the first thing you do when you I think your house is left is you've got to come forth and you've got to go to the, the, the priest and, and ask him to adjudicate whether it's house leprosy. But the, this is another little midrash playing on whose house it is, right? The funniness of that language. Right? And, and we, we, let's see this one, too. So, the sages in um, Arachin interpret that as meaning the one who designates his house for himself and does not benefit others will, uh, uh, other, and does not benefit others with him. Right. It seems familiar to us from the preceding Vaikura. Okay. For this reason, God gave him as an inheritance a house full of goodness to test him whether he would do good from his house also to others. For mine is the silver and gold, says God. And everything that a person gives to others, it's not her own that she gives. Rather, it comes from the table on high. Uh, and, that, and, and that's why she acquired it. Uh, thus it says, when you come to the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to you as an inheritance, for not with their, thor- not with their sword did they conquer the land, and their arm did, did not save them from the healing. Rather, the, the right hand of God did so, to give them the estate of, of nations. 
And there is no room for, for the miserly to say, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth from Devarim. For behold, it is God who gives you, you strength and inheritance, and if so, it is logical that you must give your um, that you must give it to your people's poor. And if you are among the miserly who ascribe their property to the, to themselves, then I will I will place a plague of leprosy on a house of the land of your property. That is on a place wh- which you regard as your own property, as if you grabbed it with your own strength. Great. So first, basic question is which of the two midrashim that we saw. Right, the two midrashim from Leviticus Rabbah. Which of them is he like? Which is the Kliakar going like? Which is he following? The second one. So say how he's following. So I'll say how he's following the second one. Yeah. Well, because he's talking about generosity. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, but also, when the when the midrash ends with the fichot Moshe Masir is Yisrael. Mm-hmm. What he's specifically telling them, listen, when everything is good for you, good. don't think it's because of you. Great. Don't think it's because you are so good. Mm-hmm. It's still because of God's bounty to you. Okay, so, so it's like the second one you're saying because it's about the situation in which everything is good, the temptation that you're going to have, you're and the idea of you're going to misunderstand and, and you're going to be punished for it. Right? So that's like oh, the way it's like the second one. Everyone agree it's like the second one? Nodding, nodding, nodding. Everyone agrees like the second one? Somebody better say the other one. Somebody better say the other one. But when you're miserly, it is you. Uh-huh. That's the how, how is it like the first one? It is like the first one also. Because it's in the house already. How, how is the Cleocar building on the first one? The wealth isn't yours. Good. Right. The wealth isn't yours. That is not a feature of the second text, right? In the second text, you have to lend because that's what it is to be a nice person when you have some money. Is that you have an obligation? You know, I have money. I, you know, I could be good. Mark Zuckerberg. Now you have to endow the children's hospital, right? <laughs> that's that's not that's the paradigm in the second one. In in the first one, the key point is that it's not yours, right? And that's where he's taking from the first one, right? So if the Kliakar is fusing the two midrashim into one story. That's the kind of key move he's making as an interpreter. He's saying these are not, you might have thought, I think at some point, I'm maybe misrepresenting you, David, but it seems like you were suggesting, and it's a natural thing to think, that the two Leviticus texts are kind of parallel accounts, right? Parallel, different homiletics that are they're teaching, but he's imagining them as one continuous story that links together. First, you get this money that isn't yours, and as a result, you have to do X, Y, and Z with it. Now, okay, so this is the Midrashim. What is, yeah, what do you got? Um, Remind me of your name. Linda. Linda, um, yeah, It seems to me that um, he's not only um, teaching them about um, the difference between the life in the desert and the yeah. kind of life that exists in Canaan, yeah. but he is teaching a lesson that they will need to act mm-hmm. on when they, when they come to Canaan in terms of the way that they conduct their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Good, good. Um, <clears throat> so we have the two midrashim. Question: What does the Kliakar add that is in neither of the midrashim? What does he invent? Dina, you are well disposed to answer this question based on a previous point you made. I don't see. I don't see it here. Uh huh. What, what do people think? What is what? What's in, what's in the Kliakar that's not? in the other two, Midrashim. 
It's not really yours, right? I mean, he's making explicit something that I think was implicit in, in the first Midrash that it's not really yours. Yeah, Wendy? Is it that miserliness mm-hmm. is the sin? It's not the acquiring of the stuff. Uh-huh. But your miserliness, which is what causes the house to be that to me sounds a lot like the second text. Yeah. That sounds like the second text. I'm wondering what's in the Kliyakar that's not in either. Yeah, Sarah, what do you that's got? The wealth is a, some kind of test from God. Good, that's one thing. Right? The first text is a gift. It's a nice gift, right? You know, you get, you get a wonderful gift. It's not so nice here. Right? It's not so nice, you know. Being rich is, you know, is it, it's easier for a rich man to or is it as, easy, is it as difficult for a rich man to enter heaven Right, as a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's the theology of the Kliakar, right? Is that it's a test to be rich, and most people it's not going to work out so well, right? Good. That's one thing. What else is he adding? The key thing is that it puts into doubt the sense of ab- of absolute ownership. Uh-huh. That it wasn't yours to start with. Great. It, 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 it comes, it's Good. a theological gift, Good. and ultimately the benefits of the gift are theological and therefore uh, moral and ethical. Good. Th- this actually goes back to that split that we had of is it unearned because it's stolen or is it unearned because it's God? Because it's God. Right. But there's but there's a relationship between them. There's a sense, a deep sense of that there's a meaning to the unearned quality of it. There's one more thing, which is Bina, you remember you you were complaining that it was all loaning in Leviticus Rabbah? Here it's not loaning anymore. Right? And here it's not about your friends. It's not someone comes and says, Can I have a cup of sugar? Right? Here, what is it? What's, what do you got? What do you got to do in this one? You got to give. Who do you got to give to? Your brother. The poor, right? There's a hierarchical element in this text. It's not about creating a pure society of Shabbos table reciprocity or something like that. It's about the people who are disadvantaged in the society, right? That's a kind of important point. That that kind of transition. Yeah. Oh yeah. About this. <laughs> We we earn money in this country not because we're so great, but because the country is great. Yeah. The country has the resources from which we can earn, and therefore we owe back to the country. And, and not just that, we earn money sometimes because it was taken from some other people. <laughs> right? I push it. I think I, you know. In other words, it, you're right. The money didn't it didn't right. doesn't grow on trees. You know what I mean? Like it came from somewhere, right? You you yeah. can't earn money in Bangladesh the way you can earn it here. Right, well, yeah. <laughs> it's a longer conversation. Okay, so... But I don't think you earn money from people... From other, you deprive other people of money by taking the money. If yeah. you're talking about the blacks not getting the GI Bill, we should have shared it equally, but we didn't take it from them. I, I'm trying to understand... Right, I mean, I think actually it's a really nice parallel. We didn't take it from them, it just happened to show up. Right? Do you know what I mean? That's what's sort of interesting. One of the other things about Vayikra Rabbah is Vayikra Rabbah is a story. It's actually not the story in the book of Joshua. If you read the book of Joshua, it's not that they hid the money and then they all ran away. Right? This is a version of a story where the money just shows up. Who knows where it came from, right? There's money in the houses. Isn't that great? You know, I mean, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's in some ways, it's a, it's a, it's, there's a certain fairy tale quality about the story, the first Leviticus Rabbah. It's a story in which dispossession just sort of happens. Just look, look I have a lot of money. You know, wake up and I'm upper middle class. You know, I mean, that, by the way, that, that's my life story, right? I don't know anything about how it came to be the case that my parents had a lot of money, you know? Um, what, let's just, to return us to the kind of core thematic question, 
How does the clear car think about the relationship between gratitude and obligation? I know this is kind of a bigger, more abstract question, um, but how does the clear car think about the relationship between gratitude and obligation? Could you, could you kind of... Yeah, Wendy. If you are fortunate yeah. to acquire a lot of money, maybe through your efforts, to, or partly through your efforts, but because God has looked favorably on you, yeah. talks about, um, you have an obligation to give back to yeah. those who didn't get that favor, yeah. or to the society which to run by God, that, which enabled you to become enriched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if your grandfather, you know, did well in the cloak and suit business, uh, and uh, you are sitting there with as, a, as he did, wealth, okay. <laughs> many of us never did like that. Yeah, um, that um, you have the right to say that the, the way the government set up the society, or however, or the laws of the government, however they were inspired by the divinely or by human beings, we're extending right. human beings. Good. Yeah. That in this case, you owe to that society. Yeah, I just point out, there's a certain interesting point what you're making is that you get a gift from God, and it, this is not a text about giving a gift back to God. This is a story in which the obligation is, is outwards, right? People won't die. That the obligation, the, the, the gratitude to God creates an obligation in another direction. Yeah, I was thinking that in our like in the discussion that we opened this with, we were talking. It sounded like a lot of people about um, gratitude as sort of the feeling that you have and mm. the, the way that you feel about the institution obligates right. you to do stuff. And it doesn't seem like Good. it's about how you, like it seems like it's about the fact that you have this stuff. And like yeah. even if your like internal experience of it is that you have it because like you're a really good person, or you worked really hard, or like you rolled the dice. Like that doesn't seem like good. It's about your feelings. Gratitude is not an affect here. It's an objective feature of your circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, but to me, that almost seems like the most under-argued part of it, which mm-hmm. is that you know, it's not. He's not saying because of like the veil of ignorance yeah. or something. It's like we we get something, and it's logical that we have to give it to the poor, but it's not clear why until he brings us back to, well, then we're going to get leprosy. So, you know, there's a <laughs> consequence, but we don't necessarily... Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's where the first text is right. doing its crucial work. That is to say, the reason that you have to give it is it never really belonged to you, mm-hmm. right? This is a theory of property in which property is something that is on trust. Right? It is sort of not a kind of Lockean theory of property in which you have a right to things you acquire. It's a kind of religious theory of property on which things you have acquire happen to have come into your possession to be used for particular reasons. Right? And the kind of evidence he's giving of that is, you know, in the case of Canaan, you really didn't earn it. Um, okay, I, we only have a little time, so I, wa- I want to hit the last source. Sorry. Um, this is the, the last source is... Claudia Card, very great feminist philosopher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, died in 2015. She's also an important Jewish philosopher. She wrote a really great article, Gratitude and Obligation. Um, and let's see, Beverly, would you give us just the first paragraph? American Philosophical Quarterly 20... You don't need that. Instead of <laughs> the idea of debt, of gratitude, seems paradoxical. If that for which gratitude is due was neither for sale nor a mere loan, but was in some sense gratis, what sense does it make to feel indebted for it? 
How can one repay such a debt without transforming the transaction into one in which gratitude has no place? What kind of debt is this? The debtor paradigm works best for relatively formal obligations. It presents problems for informal and personal relationships. Contractual bonds are not the only ethically significant interpersonal ties. A debtor may have cause to be grateful for the extension of credit. Does the debtor then owe two debts? Moral bookkeepers may say so and consider that paying interest take care, takes care of the second debt. But then there seems no basis for gratitude. So what's the paradox here? Someone explain in simple language, like what's the paradox? Why, why is the idea of a debt of gratitude paradoxical? This debt means a transfer of one thing to the other and it's reciprocal in the mm -hmm. same sorry, not reciprocal. It is transactional. You Good. lend something, you get it back. Maybe you lend something, maybe you also get the benefit of having the loan and you're paying back for the benefit of having Good. been given the loan. That's the interest. Good. But it's not the same thing as gratitude. Great. There seems to be something non-transactional about gratitude. If I lend Akiva $20, so one thing he needs to do is give me the $20 back. But there's also something that I lent him $20, right? And then the question is, that's what he's grateful for, right? The loan. And then, so one possibility is he could give me $2 extra. That'd be great for me, you know? But the problem is, then there's no gratitude. Then we're, you know, that's the MasterCard Corporation, right? That's not, that's not gratitude. That's good, you know, then I'm, then I'm in business for myself. So what do you do with the gratitude? Like, it seems to exist as this second debt and yet not really be fully computable. Does, that, does everyone get the kind of yeah. the paradox she's playing with? You can't charge interest so that you can't be obligated to pay interest. Great, good. There's like a little Jewish piece here that's just <laughs> playing around with the idea that, that it's forbidden to charge interest. Good. What, one last question before we move to the second paragraph. What's the difference between formal and informal relationships? What is she, why, why is that important to her? The difference between formal and informal relationships. I suspect if you're dealing with MasterCard, yeah. there's no person that you're Good. dealing with. Whereas if you loan Akiva $20, no one else loaned it to me. Turned to 20 people and no Great. one gave it to him. You gave it to him. So that there is an interpersonal relationship. Great. It, when I work with the MasterCard Corporation, which mm -hmm. I do on a regular basis, right, we make a contract that stipulates exactly how our relationship is going to function, and that's the boundaries of it. And something about gratitude seems to have to do with relationships that Akiva and I have that are non-expressible in contractual language, that have something to do with the person of Rafi and the person of Akiva. All right, Akiva, as an you know, act of gratitude to me for loaning you the $20, read the second paragraph. Uh, a bond more coherent with gratitude and friendship than that of the debtor is that of a trustee or guardian not under contract. Owing gratitude is more like having accepted a deposit than like having taken out a loan. In taking out a loan, I am extended credit. My position is, in, is inferior to that of my creditor in that I am subject to non-reciprocal constraints. At least sensible creditors so arrange matters. Right, certainly the MasterCard Corporation does, <laughs> right? By contrast, in receiving a deposit, I already have, I I already have credit. I, I, I don't have to prove myself. My judgment is relied upon. Deposits are a source of pride. As, I, as a beneficiary, I can regard myself as the trustee of another's goodwill or concern. I cannot uh, literally return another's goodwill, but I can reciprocate it. In paying a debt, I discharge that obligation. I am no longer bound by my, to my former creditor. That special relationship is concluded. By contrast, living up to informal obligations tends to confirm or reaffirm the special relationship involved rather than, than to bring it to a close. As I live up to my, to my obligations to, to friends and associates, we become closer friends and associates. Our ties mm -hmm. deepen, become stronger. 
good. Aha, good. Yeah. So what is, so there's two metaphors here, the loan metaphor, which is the one we had been working with, and now there's the deposit metaphor. What's the difference between the loan metaphor and the deposit metaphor, and why does she prefer the deposit or trustee metaphor? Does that make sense? Why does she, what does is, what is Claudia Card think is better about the deposit metaphor than the loan metaphor? involves ongoing relationships that don't come to the end of the end of the transaction. Great, good. The idea of the deposit is that it persists. The deposit, I give you something for safekeeping or to be a steward of it. You never give it back. You, it's a kind of continual, ongoing thing. That's one difference. What else? Well, of course, if you're a trustee, you may be giving the income of it to somebody else. Uh huh. Okay. Legal, you know, a legal trust. Great. So you can play out more of the details. What are the other differences between being having a deposit and taking a loan? In, look in what she's saying. What are the other differences? Trust. 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 Say. What does that mean? Well, with the deposit, you're you're in, in, inherently trusting the person Good. with whom you're depositing. Great. Good. Yeah, this is a very important point to Claudia Card in the continuation of the article because she talks about the possibility. Is it really possible to be grateful for something that a hierarchical superior does for me, right? Is, and she argues that no, in some sense, gratitude is bound up with the sense of trust and equality, right? If I give someone a gift, part of what's me, what that means is that I trust them with it and I'm, I'm entrusting them with it, right? And there's something that goes wrong in that relationship, right? The MasterCard company doesn't, doesn't, doesn't trust me at all. Right? That's the whole point. They're, they're, it's, it's totally contractual. But there's a sense in which a deposit has a sense of trust and, and esteem of the person entrusting it. So yeah, feeling gratitude is actually also about feeling good about yourself, that you're a worthy recipient for the gift. Unstated, but implicit in the term trust is yeah. the fiduciary obligations by the trustee. Good. So that's, that's something that is similar about these relationships, is that they both have obligations. Right? In other words, the fact that it's a deposit doesn't mean you do whatever you want with it. Quite the opposite. You have obligations. What type of obligation? What, what, what say out what the obligation of the... Of the it's a moral obligation. It's a moral obligation. Sorry? Return it when it's asked for. Return it when it's asked for. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be complicated because the deposit here is not, I think, in the sense quite of the Shomer Chinam. Right? It seems to be more like a trustee of a foundation or something like that. Um, yeah. What, what are the obligations of the trustee? What does it seem like the obligation is to do with the deposit? Care for and preserve. To care for. It. Yeah. So you're care for and preserving it. Be a good steward of it. What else? And perhaps increasing its value. Perhaps increasing its value. And if the trust was received with a particular yeah. purpose, good. Uh, maintain the purpose and fulfill the obligation. Great. So this goes back to I. I've forgotten your name again. Hadassah's idea about the doctor example, right? Is that, was that your idea? That, that in some sense, part of what it means to be grateful is to pass along in a way related to the initial gift, right? To sustain the meaning of the gift in some way. So take it back to the Schwartz. Yeah. I have a question. One more, yeah. Okay. Um, I, unfortunately, am going to relate to yeah. the government as MasterCard. Yeah. I do not have, it's a contractual relationship. I do not have a personal relationship with the government where I feel gratitude. It. I mean, I'm, I'm putting it on the level of the yeah. lecture. So how does one relate 
Yeah. Gratitude to something that is so distant from you. By paying taxes. But these are not distant. That's yeah. not exactly what we're, I mean, we're paying yeah. taxes. Let's assume we're paying taxes. Yeah. Okay. But that's not, that's similar to paying back a loan. You're paying your taxes. But we're expecting more than paying back our taxes. We're expecting the, the gratitude of the personal relationship, of establishing the trust to begin with. Mm -hmm. and so to you, it, this seems unrealistic. Well, not, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying yeah. that it's, it's, I'm relating challenge. to the government's MasterCard. Right. How do I not relate to the government as MasterCard? Uh-huh. Yeah, what, what? Personal service, such as yeah. army or, uh, or shot suit kind of thing. And secondly, not, not, not the obligation to the government, but to the creed which underlies your understanding of the government. Yeah. So participation in, 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 uh, in, uh, Activity. Yeah. Can I just actually reframe and just open up a slightly more open question of a second? I think this is a deep, valuable challenge, but just on a kind of broader level, what are the deposits that people in this room have with them, if that makes sense? Broaden out for a second. The American government is obviously one part, but what are the deposits that you are a trustee of? The environment. The environment, yeah. The 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 the, the environment as it is. Air I breathe. Yeah, good. Other other things you are trusted. Genetic. The investment my parents made in me. Mm -hmm. right. Investment your parents made and and say say a little bit about what does that entail well, of you? That's like, what much closer to the Cleocar. Yeah. That that investment that they made in me. Yeah. I I can be have, I'm grateful. I yeah. can't give it back to them. Good. It's you my obligation to play it forward, yeah. to do it to the next generation. Yeah. So, yeah, Margaret, what's your question? Thank you. Um, back, back in the the kill your car when it says it is logical that you must give to your people's poor. Yeah. It seems to me a lot of things having to do obligation can go back to that and it doesn't say who your is in mm -hmm. people's poor. Good. So it leaves a lot of um, discrimination on a person yeah. to decide how large the your would be. I think that's right. And things will work or not work depending on how right. you see yourself within a society. Yeah. And I, think, I think one of the things you're saying is that part of what's involved in being a good trustee is being a good interpreter. Right? You know, I mean, if you think about the grandchildren who run the Ford Foundation at this point, right? Like, you have a grandfather who was a notorious anti-Semite and, you know, vicious in various other ways. He left an enormous amount of money. And now you sort of have to interpret, what does your people's poor mean, right? Like, what does the moral imperative mean? What does it mean to... I have an obligation, in some sense, to be a steward of this money, and I have to do it well, right? So I think you're exactly right, that there's a problem of interpretation. Um, so I just want to close with one final little thought. Um, I think as you approach Thanksgiving, I'm speaking for myself, it's possible no one else has this anxiety. I have an anxiety about the fact that the land that we're expressing gratitude for is stolen land. That's an anxiety I have. Um, and it comes up every Thanksgiving, and I worry about it. And I'm not saying that it makes the original act of acquisition any better, but what I would suggest that the Clea car and Claudia card, right, and the Midrash are suggesting is that is a good anxiety to have because it is a good reminder that your money doesn't belong to you. It belongs to other people. 
right? And the fundamental goal of Thanksgiving is to make you actually, I mean, you have a nice meal too, but to make you a little uncomfortable. Also, to make you feel like the stuff you have comes from somewhere else and doesn't, is a little unearned. And there's a, there's a good sense of unearned as well. Because unearned also means that you are, you are a trustee of it. 